0: Welcome to Cinema Talk, the official podcast of the UW Cinematheque. This is Jim Healy, and I am the Cinematheque's Director of Programming. This week, the Cinematheque is providing an opportunity to become familiar with the movies of American independent writer-director Dan Salit. Salit's fifth and latest feature, entitled 14, is his first movie since The Unspeakable Act, which screened at the 2013 Wisconsin Film Festival. 14 is a mesmerizing and ultimately devastating study of the friendship between two young women. Since its premiere at the 2019 Berlin Film Festival, it's been hailed by critics around the world in publications like Calle du Cinema, The Hollywood Reporter, IndieWire, Film Comment, Sight and Sound, and The New Yorker. This week, more than 50 art house theaters around the U.S. will be partnering with 14's distributor Grasshopper Film. To provide virtual screenings of Salit's movie at home for a rental price. But the Cinematech has arranged to offer a limited number of free home viewings of 14. To receive your link to view the movie at home, send an email to infocinema.wisc.edu. That's cinema.wisc.edu and simply write the word 14 or the number 14 in the subject line or in the email, and we'll send that link to you that will allow you to view it at home. The Cinematheque is also providing the opportunity to discover the early work of Dan Salit, specifically his first three low-budget features. They are Polyperverse Strikes Again from 1986, Honeymoon from 1998, and All the Ships at Sea from 2004. To view these films for free, simply visit the Cinematex blog at cinema.wisk.edu slash blog or subscribe to our weekly email at cinema.wisk.edu slash subscribe. We're going to be offering a number of free at-home viewings in the next few weeks to come of other films, so if you're not receiving our weekly emails, that's the best way to stay aware of what we're doing and folks who receive the emails will be the first to learn of these opportunities and the first to be able to take advantage of the limited free screenings at home. And as if that weren't enough free content, stay tuned to this very same podcast to hear in just a few moments my colleague Mike King in discussion with Dan Salit. Their talk focuses on a number of topics, notably 14 and its production, Salit's development as an artist, and his evolving appreciation of the French filmmaker, Maurice Piala. The talk concludes by touching on Salit's passionate cinephilia, which you can read more about by Googling Dan Salit's homepage. That's Salit, S-A-L-L-I-T-T. So without any further ado, here's Cinematheque programmer Mike King talking with Dan Salit. Hi, Dan.
1: Hello. Thanks for having me.
0: So,
2: 14 is the story of a long term friendship between two young women, Mara, who's played by Tally Medell, and Joe, played by Norma Cooling. They've been friends since junior high, but have begun drifting into different paths in their young adulthood. Mara is easing into it more naturally, while Joe struggles holding down jobs and other commitments and seems to have a substance abuse problem. One way, Dan, that it's of a piece with your other work is that it takes a kind of taboo or scandalous subject matter and deals with it in an unusual way, where it's discussed on screen in very precise and matter-of-fact dialogue often. So the film feels very direct, but a lot of the actual transgressions uh, take place off screen, like in All the Ships at Sea, for instance. We don't see the cult. It's described to us. And that's much the same way with uh, Joe's Troubles in 14. Can you talk a little bit about that approach?
1: I think it's not so much that I'm trying to be really um, discreet it's more of establishing a, a perspective within the film and a lot of fourteen is about you know Natalie Mara's perspective and what she sees and what she doesn't see and the reason is just that it's more mysterious and I'm always trying to like you know coax more mystery out of the situation. I, can't, I, I never could really see too many advantages to showing some, one of Joe's worst moments on screen. It seemed like at best I could just render a bad moment but not get too much dimension. Whereas it's exciting when you hear that Joe's flipping out and threatening someone with a knife, and then Tally shows up, Norm, Mara shows up, and, and Joe's blissed out smoking a cigarette and meditating. That's like... To me, that's where the where the fun stuff is. All the ships to sea was similar, you know. The the cult that was in the background was interesting because of the suggestions, the suggestion that these really nice civilized people might have been indulging in, you know, unspoken, you know, bad things somewhere else. So it's really all a matter of like trying to find the perspective that gives you the most mystery.
2: Yeah. Um, you bring up Tally Madel sort of, she's the main character that we experience all of this through. So we only see Joe in relation to her and that seems, you know, that can be how it is when you're dealing with people with these kinds of issues. You only have the access to their availability. You know, they only yeah. let you see as much as they want.
1: Yeah. And by using Mara's point of view, you get that feeling, you get that feeling that, this is someone out there in the world, maybe malfunctioning in a lot of ways, but it's filtered through perspective. And that's, that's a lot of the really fun moments in the film come from the fact that there's a big gap between what we think is happening and what we see. And, mm-hmm. that's, and that's life in general. you know.
2: Absolutely. It feels more lifelike to me yeah. um, than the big dramatic things that you might get in a more conventional film. It's much more interesting.
1: And also I was heading the whole time towards some emotional scenes with the two of them, some scenes where it was just all going to come to a, to a head. And that was fine with me to save the, the big stuff for then, you know, that felt right.
2: Yeah. And those scenes are very, you know, unique and unusual as well. Not what you would typically expect. Um, Your film, you know, 14 has this really compelling pair of characters and lead performances, and you write dialogue in a very specific way, and it seemed to latch on to certain performers. Tally Maddell has been in your last two films. Previously, Edith Meeks was in two Mm -hmm. films in a row for you. Um, What do you look for in actors when you're casting these movies?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, because of course it varies some with, you know, the role and, and what you're... What you're shooting for at that particular moment, but I do think there is something. I, I, I think that you want um, you want someone that can hide their feelings sufficiently that you can get that kind of sense of of mystery from the ex- outside of them and from what you know is going on. So at least part of what I'm looking for is somebody who doesn't wear their heart on their sleeve, on their face, you know, mm-hmm. slightly grotesque metaphor, but <laughs> similarly, um, but somebody who like can keep it to themselves, you know, and that's, and, you know, in different ways, you know, different actors, you know, different actors have different ways of getting to that. Tally's way of getting to that is just this really amazing kind of ability to exist in front of the camera in a, in a in a naturalistic way um, Edith just naturally has has this great craft you know and this great kind of sense of 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 you know restraint that she you know works with that's like part of her that's part of her whole approach so it, everybody might arrive there differently but what, what I don't usually go for what I usually can't handle even if it's a really good actor is someone who's sending little cues to their Mm. internal state that's like even even to this extent we do it in real life i sometimes want to keep that to a minimum
2: yeah um I wasn't familiar with uh, Norma Cooling before seeing this movie, who uh, the actress who plays Joe, but mm. it seems to me that she brings something slightly different than some of the other lead performers that you used. Um, she's a little bit less formal maybe in her mannerisms or seems a little bit mm-hmm. more spontaneous. And it's a nice balance with Tally Medell and the more typical performances in your films. Uh, how did you find her and integrate her into your style?
1: she was um uh, i actually for the first time in my life was given access to a talent agency oh. and they were uh and they were it was just, you know fairly late in the casting process and they were helping me find people and she was i think the very last person that they had wow um, and i really liked her um I think that there is something uh, after that of course after we started shooting she had a Got a role on on uh, you know national television on Chicago Med, which I think's an NBC series, or maybe it's not, but it's a, it's at any rate it's okay. a it's a broadcast series. So she's much better known uh, now than she was when I cast her. Hmm. Um, I think it's like the difference is kind of in all the ships at sea. Also, there was that big difference between Strawn Beauvais, and Edith Strawn with her like. Just like this amazingly good, like uh, signaling system that Strawn has when she looks mm-hmm. at something, it just is so expressive, and it's so it kind of almost gives you a narrative with the look. And Edith is very involute; she's like so complex that you despair of ever getting to the center of her. You know, <clears throat> so that was that contrast was was. Natu- it's natural if you're going to build a movie on two people to want some kind, of, some kind of contrast between them, some kind of contrast of acting styles helps,
2: yeah. Um, and Strawn, of course, turns up in a small role in <clears throat> uh 14. And your film is also kind of filled out. You know, I'm curious about the sort of New York film personalities that you sometimes pepper through your yeah. uh, supporting guest, including uh Evan Davis, who was uh-huh. the Cinematheque product assistant for some years so That's we can great. tell him. Uh, is there a reason that you go to that those people for some of the supporting roles
1: you know it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a mix of people that I know I liked it when I when I think of somebody who feels right and I think can like act enough to mm-hmm. you know or and exist enough I, I I'm gonna be inclined to um, to look at look at those people. So and they're just people yeah. you know in your life. That yeah, you it's yeah, it's fun. It's nice and it's fun. These are also people, like some of these people are in the film world and they're interested. They're, mm-hmm. they're the people I see a lot. So, you know, I don't shy away from professional actors, but you know, some of the people who, you know, I, I, I know and in, in cast like that are professionals in one way or another, or semi-professionals. Chris Wells has a big role right. in the movie. He's not a professional actor, but he's acted more than once in some movies that were more visible probably than mine will be.
2: So, um, 14 covers a number of years, uh, but it doesn't always clue us in to precisely where we are in the timeline. Uh, we notice these narrative ellipses more through changes in living situations or boyfriends or kids growing up. And it might take a moment to realize that the characters have moved on farther than I thought between scenes. Yeah. Uh, how did you arrive at this sort of strategy of not cluing us in always when the shifts were taking place?
1: It, um, it's a strategy that's probably pretty close to what the, the French director Maurice Pillard does, Pila. Mm-hmm. And I was definitely thinking of that. I've been thinking of Pila for years, and I would never did a movie before with big time jumps. hmm
2: well there's so, a 2 year jump in um uh, honeymoon right?
1: Yeah there is actually you're right there is a big jump in the in the beginning
2: and yeah, that's that says that on screen it's doing It says 2
1: years later exactly. Oh, yeah. I always felt bad because um, there was a haircut Edith got a haircut specifically for that <laughs> but the but the lighting was such that you couldn't even see it that well so this like <laughs> this kind of cool gesture is, was lost in in 14 I dispensed with such gestures I didn't like try to emphasize changes but there are some it's very subtle I think I really like, like it's occasionally a shot where it looks like a you know a regular old time jump within the same time period and you'll Mm -hmm. but but you might notice that someone's hair is much longer much shorter
2: um yeah uh, i found it really you know engaging to keep up with the film that way and you're like oh wait a minute like does she have two boyfriends and then you realize (laughs) no this is like much later um and in their relationship it captures a long-term friendship you know where you might not be totally up to date on every aspect of this person's life they'll be walking down the street and sort of catching up on each other's lives but there's a deeper Uh, loyalty between them and trust between them. And that seems to capture the relationship.
1: Yeah. I think that it, 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 like a lot of movies that I would do that a lot of people would do, it's a love story. It's like a, you know, there's conflict and there's pain, but you know, Mara desperately loves Joe. Mm -hmm. Her Her childhood self loves Joe desperately. That will never go away. Even if what you see is like nine tenths, two thirds conflict, um, and so you know, there's a backbeat that that of of connection that is, I think, pretty important to the feeling of dissolution.
2: Absolutely, it's very moving. Um, you know, the way it accumulates over the time of the film, and it just feels you know lifelike to have these transitions be more seamless. Um, as opposed to, you know, these characters are often presented as, like, making decisions. And, you know, in here, mm-hmm. in your film, it just seems like it sort of flows. And that seems to me more how I experience life, anyways.
1: I, like a lot of people, a lot of fans of Pila, I was kind of hit upside the head by uh, Anno Amour.
2: Absolutely. And,
1: and there's a lot of this style of uh narrative of approaching a narrative is inspired by the way that he would just very um he'd make you piece things together Mm -hmm. uh make you piece together time jumps thought it was really beautiful it doesn't seem to be a big obstacle to understanding i've never met anyone who didn't you know get what was going on so yeah
2: um well, also, you, de- you dedicated, is it All the Ships at Sea to Pila? Yeah. yeah. So he's someone who must have been on your mind for some time. He's
1: been on my mind for a, a long time, but uh, I dedicated that film to him because he had just died. He died during post-production. Um, it wasn't because I thought the movie was particularly Pila-like. I actually very consciously was thinking of Pila for the first part of Honeymoon. Um, And I don't think he came across. At that point in my life, I think I was going for superficial aspects of Pilate. And I think my understanding of him increased over the years. And I feel that finally, 14 does actually partake of some of the spirit of the guy.
2: Yeah, I see it for sure. Yeah. Um, Another aspect of this structure is that uh, the scenes are shorter and there's more locations than in some of your previous films yeah. that I've been talking about where there'll be like very long sequences, dialogue scenes. Um, there's still not much cutting in your scenes, um, yeah. but you know there's a lot more, they're quicker. There's a quicker pace to it. Um, is this, you know, telling a story with this longer span of time something you specifically wanted to experiment with or was it just this story lent itself to it?
1: It's interesting. Really, the very first thing, the very first element in the causal chain was that I have a day job and I didn't think that I could get enough time off, enough contiguous time off to do one of my classic in shoots, where you have as few locations and as few actors as possible, um, I mean it is. Tr- and I mean it's true also that you do a certain number of reduced, you know, films with a lot of unity of place and time because you have to do it that way because it makes it easier to shoot that way. You do a certain number of them, and you do kind of run out of <laughs> in ideas. You kind of start wanting to do something a little bit different. So here I was with the situation where I figured the only way I could really get enough time off. Was to shoot a film in pieces, Mm -hmm. and that opened up possibilities. I started being able to think about having more locations and moving around faster. That many locations would kill you uh, on an indie film if you were if you were just trying to do it in one three week shoot. But when you're doing it in four or five pieces, which is what it turned out to be, um, it's much more manageable. You just go out there and do the same amount of location work that you do for any short any film that you'd done except that you're doing that much each time it's manageable at least
2: that's really interesting that you were able to turn this you know what would seem a limitation into something that allowed you to be much more expansive yeah. so would you say it was closer to making a series of shorts in a practical production sense you know like how much did you really break down between how big were the gaps in the production
1: the gaps were bigger than uh, i initially anticipated i planned to do about a week of shooting, about you know five or six days of shooting every three months. So that would I wanted to start in March of, of seventeen and and in December seventeen, that was the original plan mm-hmm. to take three months off and, and break it up. It, it fell apart for various reasons. One reason was um, that Norma got sick in the middle and we had to reshoot something. and another reason was that she got Chicago med. Oh, yeah. TV series and then we had to wait for it to figure out the schedule so we wound up with five shoots not four mm-hmm. and over an 18-month period not a nine-month period um but in you know, that situation was more or less designed to handle that when you jump in time you just have to make sure that the s- script is designed so that you're not trying to stitch things together and fake fake it and unfortunately we did have to fake it once the time that norma got sick we had to come back and shoot some stuff that was supposed to look as if it had happened at the same time even though it didn't so mm. there, there was one point where mm. we had to deal with the kind of headachey stuff that we were had hoped to avoid with this plan but we managed yeah. i
2: think no Fooled one told me i didn't catch it
1: yeah good <laughs> i won't tell i won't reveal it then it's just <laughs> in case so people don't look for it
2: yeah uh Did this um, shooting style have any unexpected benefits, perhaps? I mean, did you find that it lent itself to something you weren't expecting? Did you shoot in sequence also? I guess that is another question.
1: I I shot in sequence within, in the big picture, but Mm -hmm. I didn't shoot in sequence within the shoots. Like if Mm -hmm. if I, for instance, the script has nine sections, nine time sections. The first shoot might have been sections one, two, and three. Okay. And then four or five and so on. But within one, two, and three, I would do whatever made it easier for mm-hmm. myself. If we could save location moves, we would do it. Um, so I think that the biggest advantage was a, an emotional or psychological one because it really, making films is hard. I find, it, I find it emotionally hard to make movies. And when you're editing what you've done, while you're waiting for the next shoot and you're putting it together, it just gives you such a good feeling. I mean, that's the payoff and you're getting a little bit of the payoff Mm -hmm. as you go along. That really uh, improves your mood when you see the film starting to come together and you haven't uh, stopped, finished shooting it yet. Did you share that
2: with people or? uh... Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I would share it when I, I, I'm not a big, you know, I'm not secret about stuff. If an actor wants to see some stuff, all they have to do is like ask. Um, Usually I'm trying to, th- I hope, now having said that, I'm trying to think if there are any exceptions. I, don't, I, don't, I can't think of any situation where I, I needed to keep something under wraps. I'm not the sort of person, I planned so much that I didn't really build one section on another. I had planned it all ahead of time. So I didn't like look at one section and say, huh, I need to now do this in the second, which would be a very natural way Mm -hmm. to go except that i'm a little too obsessive compulsive about the planning thing and i planned all the cutting in advance i planned all the compositions in advance more or less so i kind of stick to my plan once i do it and i I squandered this opportunity that some people would have really valued to like react to what they had done and shoot accordingly in the next section
2: well your films feel very precise precisely crafted overall so it makes sense that they would be meticulously planned
1: yeah that's a it's a it's a psychological thing you know you can see it you can see it in hitchcock you can see that hitchcock is like anxious person (laughs) scared of shooting and he likes to pretend that he's finished the shoot before it's begun just by planning it so carefully Mm. i can't i haven't got the resources to achieve that to the extent that he could but i know What he's feeling and i feel the same thing i don't know as much about ozu but i have a feeling maybe we have somebody else there with a little anxiety about shooting
2: do you generally find editing to be the most satisfying part or the part where you see the film actually coming together
1: yeah for sure i mean by default it's the most satisfying part because pre-production is really hellish a lot of the time (laughs) it's always pre-production's got a lot of anxiety associated with it And production actually is better than I would think it would be because there's all these people coming together and helping you and there's like interesting things, but there's still always the anxiety of wondering whether or not something's going to lay you low and stop you in your tracks or interfere with the progress of your plan. So post-production has this enormous benefit that it really would require like an act of God to ruin the film at that point. (laughs) It's in the can you don't have to worry anymore and you just like can take a break or not take a break. You like, it's on your computer at home. You like Mm -hmm. edit it in your underwear. If you want to, it's like no stress.
2: And, but you've been making films for a long time. Did you find it to be, did you have a similar disposition towards post-production when it wasn't on the computer? I have to imagine, or, I mean, even if, uh, probably, how did you edit? Uh, (laughs)
1: Honeymoon was the only uh, film where I actually had an editor. My my good friend Robin Burchill, who, who was has the uh, did the editing, and we I would go to her studio. And Robin's great, and it was great. I I really I'm sure there's some things that I lose now by not having that like sympathetic and intelligent external perspective. But I have to say the, the post production. On honeymoon, which depended upon not just Robin, but lots of different people, because I was working in 16 millimeter, I had mm-hmm. laboratories, I had negative cutters. It has the same stresses in those cases, and the same delays, and you wonder wondering whether you'll ever get to the end. And <laughs> the ones that I did in my living room don't have that. Mm-hmm. You just, I mean, even if you do a fraction of the work, it's going to get done faster because there's no there's no negotiations with the world about when you could do it and how much you can do it. So, you know, as much as I think I miss that external perspective, as much as I like miss Robin's like presence in the editing room, it's like, it was, it helped me to like have one section where I just do it on my own. Mm
2: -hmm. Um, Your films have you know, speaking of the changes in technology, your films have generally stayed on a comparable scale overall this time, but have, aside from the editing, you know, changes in cameras, all these different kinds of technologies, have they affected things for you in other ways during other aspects of filmmaking?
1: I don't know. Um, I mean, there's the beauty of 16 millimeter, which I only used once mm-hmm. and i look at it and i still feel it i'm not immune to that like celluloid love um and you know definitely during that transition to video i can see now that all the ships to see just the technology wasn't as good you know when it came, by the time you get to it
2: yeah, was that I'm shot speakable. on mini dv um
1: no it was shot like uh it was shot on a panasonic uh camera that was what was the re- resolution i'm losing it all i think it was 1020 by 768 Oh, okay, which is like I guess that's I guess that's SD. I, it's like one quarter of the f- pixels that I would be mm-hmm. later later be using,
2: and you could see it. Yeah, I, you don't notice a transition between the last two, really. You know, no, first, you don't. It's there.
1: It's it's there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's almost the same camera. Actually, uh, the camera is slightly different, but I was really fond of uh, the Sony camera that Duraid Munajim, the the DP for Unspeakable Act, uh, had. And the one that we, that that, uh, Chris Messina, the DP for uh, 14, brought to the set was very similar, just like a little bit further down the the chain of, uh, of upgrades with the same basic technology. Yeah, it's there.
2: Yeah. So there's been, um, you know, like you mentioned, you have a day job. So I would assume that's something we can attribute the long gaps between your movies longer than we I would like, anyways. Because I always enjoy uh-huh. them when I can finally get the chance to see them. Okay. Um, what do you see when you look back at some of your older movies? You know, you only have five features, but some of them are twenty some years old. Um, yeah.
1: What
2: that What's that experience like for you to go back to them?
1: It's interesting. you, know, I, you go through different periods, which is kind of funny. Um, I recently saw um, the first film again when I was in Madrid, and they they showed all my movies. I saw uh, Poly perverse strikes again, which I did when I was pretty young. I wrote it when, most of it when I was twenty seven. I shot it when I was thirty, and I was kind of an immature twenty seven year old and thirty year old. So it's even more of a of a sensibility gap to be bridged there, but. Um now I like it better than I had in many years to tell you the truth it's it's interesting how your relations change I have the most difficulty now probably watching honeymoon because even though I think it's like good I can't mm-hmm. believe that I actually was willing to put myself and the audience through that it's I kind know. of a, <laughs> kind of a difficult movie and I don't know if I would do that now you know and, and when you watch it even it's like oh my god you know I'm really asking a lot here
2: well, it's funny because we were talking earlier about how you generally don't show the difficult part, you know, or the yeah. big. But in this movie, you do. But it's all something that's not happening, you it's know. Happening. Like it's like, uh, and it's just a really. Uh, it is yeah. extremely uncomfortable, but I found it to be something I hadn't seen in movies. You know, really,
1: I, I respect it. I still, I don't know if I don't look at it and say, "Oh, I would do it differently now." I just wonder about how much footage I had, but. It's true that I don't think I have a commitment to not showing things. Sometimes showing things is really exciting. It depends on expectations, it depends on where you're where you're looking for mystery and where you're looking for like uh you know excitement. So that that is a good example. But like the first film, Polly Perverse Strikes Again, which is shot on really crude um video, three quarter inch video, not digital video. But that was a film that I had trouble with for a long time because I didn't know about casting so much. Mm -hmm. And I cast the actors casually without just assuming that they'd be able to do like what I wanted. I was not treating actors as if they were had, you know, capabilities, which you should do. You should always cast people that way. And I I was oblivious of that. And especially the guy who was the the male lead, S.A. Griffin was just not, what I pictured the character being. And I bumped heads along the way with him. I kind of alienated him, which is really Mm -hmm. too bad. And I always felt like, oh, it's a different film than I planned. And it is a different film than I planned. But now when I go back to it, I think maybe the spirit of P.L.A. has more invaded me a little bit more. And I feel like maybe that's just fine. He's a good actor. He's really committed to always being true and real in the moment. The fact that he's a little different from what I conceived just adds kind of an extra layer now or a layer of mystery uh, almost to that character. So Mm -hmm. I really feel differently about the character. When I look at it now, I think, oh, why did I give this poor guy (laughs) like trying to like hammer him into the procrustes bed of my script you know when you know he was it kind of works fine for him to be a different person so that's like a nice benefit that i got to to counterbalance the fact that 14 that honeymoon i now kind of regret putting an audience through that much pain somehow
2: Well, you know, I mean, that's part of revisiting films over the years, you know, your own or others. I know you're a very devoted cinephile. Uh, Your website has a detailed listing of favorite films (laughs) for every year that uh, I feel like I'll never catch up to. Um, And your latest contribution to Cinephilia is an article for Filmmaker Magazine, uh, the hardest working cat in show business. (laughs) Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in Orangey?
1: Arnie, I just uh, I didn't know about Arnie until uh, the blogger David Cairns. Do you know? Do you know David Cairns? He has a blog, shadow Shadowplay, mm-hmm. uh, from uh, the UK, and he's also a filmmaker. Then, uh, most recently, did a co-directed a documentary on the the, the French producer uh, Nathan. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, he uh, he told me about Arnie when I was like complimenting a cat in one movie. He said maybe it's Arnie. And so I started reading about r got a little interested in R&D, started holding forth about R&D at dinner tables. <laughs> and uh, Vadim Rizov, who works for, uh, editor-filmmaker, um, heard me talking about r I think I can't even remember, and he was the one that wanted me to write about him. And then Sofia Bogovic, who is the filmmaker, heard me, doing something similar at a dinner table at the Vienna Film Festival this year and thought she might like to make a um, make a, a film adaptation of it. So
2: so both of those are online for your enjoyment, uh, the article and the video. Uh, lots of great oh, orangey info.
1: Yeah, yeah. The orangey info is like very largely due to Sophia's great uh, research uh, skills. Yeah.
2: Um, <laughs> So, uh, your Twitter feed, where you log your viewing habits, was mm-hmm. often a reminder to those of us in the rest of the country <laughs> of the wealth of repertory options in New York and also yeah. just that, ex- that exist in world cinema uh, I'm curious what was the last film you saw in a the theater, and what have you been watching since?
1: The last film I saw in a theater was a pip actually. I was in colombia I was at uh, I was at the, the film festival in Cartagena um, and it was a film called Valley of Souls by a colombian filmmaker, and it was really good actually. it was a new movie it's a new movie, and oh. you could like you could look up what you know the basics of it on that on that website of mine that you just mentioned because i can't remember the i can't remember the guy's name at this moment the filmmaker's name um so that was the last movie I saw and it was really good so if the, you know whoever's like writing the script for all this uh, just decided to send me out with a with a, with a bang there. But since then, I've been like, you know, watching movies at home like the rest of the world.
2: And what have you been watching? Anything particularly interesting to you these oh, days? Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. See, when you're, when you're committed to a theater-going lifestyle, mm-hmm. you take what gets programmed, and that's mm-hmm. got its own pleasure. But I also will somehow see a movie that is programmed in preference to one that I could watch on demand because the one that's programmed is there. It's, it's got a place in my calendar. I don't, I don't have to like fit it in somewhere. And so even if there are films that I could schedule for myself, that I want to see more than the ones in theaters, I would always just go to theaters. I've been doing it for 40 years. It's like a lifestyle. Yeah,
2: Yeah. Uh, I'm with you.
1: Well, here we are. If, right. we, if we don't dig into that <laughs> backlog now, we're never going to do it, right? Right. And this is, this is working out really well. Because to tell you the truth, it's, I'm seeing films that I want to see more than mm. the a- average film that I would see in theaters. The new, the modern cinema, the cinema of 2019, 2020, suffering a little bit, I think. But I'm seeing good stuff. Eat your hearts out, everybody. I'm really <laughs> like enjoying myself.
2: That's good. You don't want to give us any specific you're not interested yeah, yeah. in. It. Yeah, yeah. And
1: what I, what I what I've been seeing? Oh, sure. Um the best film I saw like these are films that are you know, I wouldn't necessarily even have picked them out of my own options. But my roommate and I have developed this kind of system of like each having some input that directs me to a film in on my lists that you know, I wouldn't necessarily have chosen. Mm-hmm. And this is working out really well because instead of programming my own retrospectives, I'm just kind of randomly getting a film from a pool of films that I wanted to see in the first place. Really the best film I've seen, I think, would possibly be um, um, this film by uh, uh, Davi Neves, uh, uh, a Brazilian director. I don't think he's with us anymore. I had seen one film by him long ago, a film from 1979 called it's a, It's Nice to Meet you," and I liked it, and I kept him in mind and I had a film of his lined up called uh, "Memories of Helena" from 1969 a little earlier than that 1979 film that I had seen by him and um, one of those surprises, I wouldn't have, probably wouldn't have picked that one ex- without the help of this randomizing system that my roommate and I have been using. awesome.
2: Oh, uh, it's fully randomized. Uh, that, pretty, ran- yeah.
1: <laughs> pretty Pretty randomized. I can't get too. I can't get outside the films I personally want to see, but I'm not alone in the selection
2: well that's somewhat like a rep house you know you're still relying on what's coming up i i I like that aspect of rep houses is there something that keeps you going back to rep houses when there is like you say this wealth of choices are you a celluloid purist or is i'm
1: not i'm not at all a celluloid (laughs) purist i'm kind of the opposite i started out watching the greatest movies in the world on like tv with commercials when i was a kid but I don't know. It's a, hard, it's a difficult question. For one thing, it's like habit and it's hard to break a lifelong habit. It's something I like. It gives you like social advantages as well as the, the film going advantages. It, it, it provides that that feeling of randomness, it gives you access to the modern cinema, mm-hmm. which uh, without I'm not really getting as much of that right now. It's possible that some films that were right on the cusp of this plague that we're having might get lost. You know, yeah. I, I hope I get to see Baccaral and I hope I get to see um, the film by the Icelandic director, the awaiter or whatever. I can't White, remember. White
2: day. Yes.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. like I kinda his first film. The first film I saw interested me, and Mm -hmm. I really would like to see this one. I hope they don't get lost, but I am not like working the new films. I feel like this is my chance to like make a dent in this backlog of film history that's been piling up on me for years. And I'm I'm having like all the films I the good films I've seen have been from all over the place, so I feel good about that right now. This is like the I don't mean to be. Uh, callous in citing like the advantages to this horrible, you know, human disaster that we're having. But, but I'm definitely seeing good movies.
2: Yeah, you got to take what you can get. Yeah, yeah. You know, like where you can get your pleasure. Um, For sure. Uh, of course, you know, speaking of modern cinema, the film everyone should be watching right now is 14. Uh, <laughs> how does it feel to be opening a film online like this? You know, on the one hand, it's a shame it won't be on the big screen, which is where we would love to be showing it. But on the other hand, this has to be the widest opening weekend you've ever had for a movie.
1: By a fair distance. Yeah. It's like kind of actually amazing. And I don't know to what extent that's just a matter of being streaming or whether or not there's some slight evolution in my, you know, identifiability on the festival circuit or Mm -hmm. what. I couldn't tell you, but I do think I mean, I think there are more than 50 theaters lined up already for to stream this film uh, starting on Friday. 50 theaters, you know, that's like Hollywood level as far as I'm concerned. I, it doesn't, Great. It's not. I can't even register it. I don't, I mean, the only thing that really occurs to me that could be a possible disadvantage of this is that I kind of would sort of like the two actresses to be eligible for award stuff because they're so very Mm -hmm. good. And because I I don't need an award, but I think it could help them and they deserve it. And I hope that there's enough flexibility in the whole system that, Mm -hmm. that they don't miss out on that, uh, that chance because of this, uh, you know, streaming situation we find ourselves in. Other than that, I'm okay.
2: Uh, I certainly think that they and the film deserve it. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and everyone should stream 14. You can find it on our website, cinema.wisc.edu. Thanks very much for having me.